following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 5. So if you want to open it up there or open up the, uh, the Bible app if you've got one, um, the U version is a great Bible app to get. Uh, when you get to Genesis 5, you're probably going to be shocked because it is just a list of names. It's just a big random list of names. Well, it's not random, but it's just a list of names. And uh, honestly, this, so this is a genealogy, a big family tree. And when, when, I, when I came to start preparing this and start looking at this passage, I, at first I wondered maybe if we should just skip it uh, and just, just dodge this whole passage of Scripture, maybe just land in the middle of Genesis 6. That's where, that's where the story of Noah's Ark starts, right? That's the exciting stuff. That's where the action is. But uh, the more that I looked at this and studied this, the more I realized there's a lot of good stuff in here, there's a lot of good stuff in this family tree, there's some really interesting things here, and this has a place. You've always got to ask yourself that, why is this in the Bible? Uh, why did God see fit to, to include this? Why did the author want to include this in the story? It has a place, it has a purpose, it's part of the unfolding story. So you'll be pleased to know this morning that we are going to look at the genealogy of Genesis 5. You picked a great day to come to church talking about a whole lot of random people you've never heard of. Uh, now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter for you. That would just be too much because uh, there's so many people here and so many uh, different names. But if you have got it on screen or in your Bible, I mean, just look down the list here in Genesis 5. And let me just ask you this question as you start. Uh, quick show of hands. How many of you can name at least one of your great-grandparents? Great-grandparents. That's, that's more than I thought, actually. You can name at least one. Not grandparents. great Grandparents, okay. How many of you could name all of them? All of your great-grandparents? Oh, that's impressive. Any, what about further back than that? Can anyone name great-great-grandparents? Great-great-great? How far back can you go, Jason? Goodness me. That's amazing. Wow, it's a strong sense of heritage, strong sense of lineage. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, most of us aren't that good, right? Most of us, when we get two or three generations, we start, it gets very murky, gets very foggy, and it sort of just gets, gets lost to, to history. And it kind of gives you a bit of a sobering sense of your own place in the story too, doesn't it? Much as we think our lives are so important, you know, and the stuff going on in our lives is just so, you know, everybody should know what's going on with us. And you realize two or three generations' time, no one's going to know who you are. <laughs> no one's going to know you. Your great-grandchildren are going to be asked this question one day, and they'll be like, yeah, who was, who was that? I don't know. Yeah. It gives you a sense of your place in the story. We have an important place in the story, but we're just one part of this ongoing family story. And that's how it is in Genesis 5. You look at all these names. These are all important people. They've all got families. They've all got stories. Um, but they are just one part of a much bigger story, a much bigger narrative, this great sweeping story of what God is doing among people on earth. So this family tree that we get here, just to, just to get our bearings with this, uh, the author is following here the line of Seth. Okay, so this is one of Adam and Eve's children. Back in Genesis 4, we followed the line of Cain through a few generations. Now we're, we're taking the other, one of the other sons of Adam and Eve. We're following Seth. So it's, a, it's just one line of the family tree, and, and down and down it goes. It stretches about 1,600 years, this family tree, uh, across about 10 generations. And so this is the part of the Bible that gets you from Adam to Noah. Okay, so that's the bridge from the story of Adam and Eve's first family all the way through to Noah. And so we get that link through these 10 generations. Now, if you're looking at this, 
The thing that really stands out, I think, is just how long these people live for. Are you noticing this? Are you seeing the numbers? Are you doing some calculations in your head about this? I mean, look at this. Adam himself lived for 930 years. 930. Uh, I, I figured out, I think the average age in here is 912 years. So that's just averaging it out. Um, clocking in the most years is Methuselah, verse 22. Uh, Methuselah, what was he? 969, sorry, verse 27. Methuselah, 969 years. So I bet he was gutted to miss the millennium. You know, he almost made it, didn't he? Well, maybe he was grateful by that stage it's all over, you know. Missed it by 35 or so years. Uh, but these are extraordinary lifespans, aren't they? I mean, just imagine living that long. Just imagine having family. The 10 generations of living family, all living successively, concurrently um, on the earth. I mean, imagine the funerals that you would have. Just, I mean, they probably didn't have funerals in these days, but imagine Adam's funeral. Because at Adam's funeral, if they had a funeral for Adam, all of these people would have been there, except for Noah. They all would have been still alive when Adam died. And so you imagine at Adam's funeral, you know, Methuselah gets up and he says, well, you know, to really understand Adam, we've got to go back to the beginning, uh, literally the beginning uh, of time. Uh, and so let me take you back 930 years uh, to when Adam began. And it's going to be a long funeral, isn't it? You're going to be there for a while, you know, when this, just the family gatherings would be very interesting. The family disputes would be very interesting. When you've got nine or ten generations all living at the same time, it blows your mind. And the question is, why? Why did they live so long? Why do you have people living into the 900s at this time? And there's various answers that get given. Some people think it's a dietary thing or an environmental thing or whatever. I, I tend to think the simplest explanation, given the context of the story that Genesis is telling, is simply that the curse of sin was still working its way out at this time. And you're sort of seeing this transitional time where we haven't yet seen the full effects of the curse of sin in the world. I mean, human beings are under the curse of sin at this time. Sin has entered the world. The world is broken. Uh, so human beings are not immortal. They don't live forever, but they're still living a, a fairly long time. And it's not until the next chapter that God finally brings the lifespan of human beings down considerably, much more into the realm of what we would know and experience today. But at this time, you're sort of seeing this transitional phase where the curse is still working its way out into human experience, into all the different parts of life. And that, that, that ripple effect is still continuing, and you're kind of seeing partway through that story. And so then you get to the end of this genealogy in Genesis 5, and then you get to this little story in Genesis 6, and I want to include this today as well because it sort of links in the first few verses of Genesis 6. And this is, a, this is an intriguing, bizarre little story here. It's a really good one for those of you that love conspiracy theories. Yeah, if you're a conspiracy theorist, this is the passage for you. If you think, uh, you know, man never walked on the moon, if you think the U.S. government masterminded 9-11, if you're one of those people, this is, you're going to have a field day with this passage. Let me just read it to you, and then you can go crazy with it. Uh, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Uh, and then drop down to verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. What on earth do you do with that? I mean, that's just bizarre, isn't it? It sounds more like something out of a Dan Brown novel, some sort of weird sci-fi fantasy stuff than something you'd expect to see in the Bible. 
Uh, well, the, the traditional interpretation, in fact, the oldest interpretation I discovered, is, that, see, the question really is, who are the sons of God in that, in that path? Who are these sons of God? So the oldest interpretation is that they are angels, uh, these angelic beings uh, in heaven, and, and somehow these angels uh, crossed over to earth and they married human women. And so the offspring of those unions were this, this race of people called the Nephilim, who were kind of the half-human, half-divine, these kind of demigods, kind of you know, like Maui, like this sort of half-human, half-divine sort of creatures. And that's what's going on. That's kind of the traditional interpretation. Now, um, maybe, I mean, a lot of Christians have certainly believed that. That's kind of held, uh, held sway for a long time. I do think, though, there may be a more plausible explanation for what is going on. It may be that when the Bible talks about these sons of God in verse 2, that perhaps it is describing human rulers. Now, I know it says sons of God, but in the ancient world, kings especially were often described as gods, and they were described as sons of God, and they were given this kind of divine status. They were believed to be the sons of God. In fact, the Bible itself refers to this. It refers to this kind of practice. Let me just read you a couple of verses from Psalm 82, where this is referenced. In Psalm 82, verse 6, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. So you see there, there's this practice of referring to kings as sons of the Most High, sons of God, and yet the author of the Psalms is saying, but you are just like every other ruler. You are just mere mortals, and you're going to perish like every other ruler. So the point is you could refer to kings as sons of God, and that was kind of an accepted practice, and that might be what Genesis, the author of Genesis is doing. And so if that's the case, then what this is describing is a practice where you have these kings, so-called sons of God, who would take women, take wives for themselves, whoever they wanted, whoever they chose. And they had such power and they were so untouchable that they would just point to any woman they want and say, you, I want you, you join my harem. And they would just take women, as many as they wanted. It didn't matter if those women were already married. They would take whatever woman they want into their harem and they would just collect them like property. And this is how women were treated. And so really I think what this passage may be pointing to is this practice of the abuse of women and the exploitation of women. These rulers, these kings that took advantage of women, vulnerable women, because of their own power, their own lust, their own selfishness, really, which is a horrendous thing to happen. And then as for these Nephilim that are referred to in verse 4, it's not necessarily that the Nephilim were the offspring of these, these unions. It, the text just says the Nephilim also lived on the earth at that time. Uh, might not have been a connection between the two. All we know about the Nephilim is they were some sort of group or tribe or clan or, or race uh, where they were tall in stature, they were skilled in battle, they were warriors, and they were heroes, heroes of old. Uh, in fact, there's one other reference to the Nephilim in the Old Testament, some of you might remember, in the book of Numbers, where the Israelites send out that, the, the scouts into the Promised Land, send out the spies into the Promised Land, some of you remember this, and they come back and they bring the report back. And they say, we saw these giants, we saw these giants in the land, and we looked like grasshoppers in their eyes, and they were the Nephilim. And that's, that's mentioned there. They, call, they say that these are the Nephilim. And so again, this reference to giants, to people of great stature, and it's quite likely those giants, those Nephilim in numbers, trace their lineage back to these Nephilim in Genesis 6. 
So we possibly don't have anything here that's quite so Dan Brown. Sorry, those of you that you know, wanted to go down the conspiracy theory line. Probably, I would say most likely, uh, we're talking about human rulers who exploited women and took advantage of them, and this reference to the Nephilim being giants and skilled in battle. So we have, admittedly, a fairly strange obscure section of the Bible here. I mean, this is just not the regular uh, normal stuff. This is not Noah's Ark. This is kind of weird. This is slightly obscure. And uh, you've got to ask, what do, what do we make of this? Why is this here? What is the purpose of this genealogy? What is the purpose of this strange story in Genesis 6? And I think ultimately what the author of Genesis is doing here, his purpose in including all of this stuff, is to show the way that both the blessing and the curse are still working their way out. He is showing how both the curse of sin and the blessing of God are being passed down and down and down and down through the generations. And so the curse of sin, that's fairly easy to see. Uh, you don't need to look far. In fact, even just the way, if you, if you read through this chapter at home, if you read it aloud, one thing you notice is there's this refrain in this chapter that keeps coming out again and again and again. At the end of every paragraph, you hear, and then he died. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Except for one person, of course, Enoch. We'll come back to him. But other than Enoch, and then he died. And, then he, and you know what's being reinforced. I mean, at one level, that's just the way a genealogy is written. At another level, it's like a clanging bell reminding us the curse is still here. And then he died. And then he died. You cannot multiply your way out of the curse. It's going to follow you wherever you go. It's going to follow you down through the generations. And death is a sign of the curse. Death really is the primary sign of living in a world that is under the curse. And you see that in the, in the sheer reality that human beings eventually, though they live a long time here, they, their lives come to an end. Death is a sign of the curse. I think we've got to take that seriously as Christians, that death is a sign of the curse. Sometimes I think maybe we, we treat death a little bit too glibly at times. We almost, almost make it a positive sometimes. You know, death is a gateway to heaven. And death is a doorway to eternal life, and it's the passageway to eternity. And in a sense, that's true. I mean, what's on the other side of death is amazing. But you've still got to recognize death itself is not a good thing. And the Bible describes death as an enemy. It is an enemy of God, and it's an enemy of humanity. It's an intruder into God's creation. It's a, it's a thief. It steals away those we love. And when we see death, we experience death close to us. We've got to remember it's a sign of a world that is still under the curse of sin. And so we see curse just simply in the way that people are continually dying in this passage. And then you see it, of course, in that section on the sons of God and the marrying whichever woman they chose. And we recognize that the curse of sin has affected every single layer of human society, right up to the kings and rulers. And these people that should be leading in the way that God wants them to lead, these people who should be extending God's loving rule into the world. Instead, they're corrupt, they're abusive, they're exploitative, they are just driven by lust and selfishness and their own impulses. And you realize the curse is just, it's reaching every single corner of humanity and no one is immune to it. And it's affecting the human heart deeply, even these kings and rulers. So right through this section, you're seeing the curse just being passed down and down and down through the generations. But alongside that, you also see the blessing. And this is what we've got to learn to recognize. Even in a chapter like this, which is kind of dark and strange, you can still see the blessing of God. Can you see it? Can, can you pick up on it? I mean, the, the sheer fact 
that you've got so many people in this chapter. You think about the blessing of God right back in the beginning. Go forth and multiply. Well, they certainly took that seriously. You know, here you've got people prolifically multiplying upon the earth. You know, by the time you get to the end of that genealogy, I think you're well into the millions of people upon the earth. So human, humanity is flourishing. Humanity is thriving. The blessing of God, go forth and multiply, is still very much in effect. And then, of course, the great sign of the blessing of God in this whole passage has got to be this guy Enoch. I mean, he's a bright, shining light in an otherwise pretty dark part of the Bible. Just look at him. Um, where is he? Verse 22. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. That's re repeated twice. Then he was no more because God took him away. Isn't that great? Isn't that just a wonderful little part of Scripture there? Enoch is one of only two people in the Bible who never tasted death. Who's the other one? Elijah. Yeah. Up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Elijah and Enoch. Not even Jesus, because Jesus did taste death. He, he, he died before he was resurrected and ascended. But Enoch and Elijah, the only two people in the Bible who never tasted death. And you just have this wonderful picture of Enoch walking so faithfully with God. You know, he's just walking so closely with God. It's like one day God just says, well, Enoch, you know, you're kind of closer to here than you are to there. You know, sort of closer to heaven than you are to earth. So why don't you just come over here rather than there? Why don't you just be here rather? And then Enoch just sort of slips into heaven. And he was no more because he walked faithfully with God. And so in the midst of the curse where you have death, 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 you have this one individual where God does not apply the curse. Do you notice that? This one individual life where the curse is reversed. And it's a little glimpse, I think, of the future that's waiting for us when death is finally destroyed. And Enoch gives us a little glimpse into that. Doesn't it make you want to walk more faithfully with God? Just reading Enoch's story, doesn't it just kind of stir your heart to want to be that person who, even in the midst of a dark world, can walk with God, walk faithfully with God, walk so faithfully with God, you can be closer to heaven than you are to earth. So there is blessing, even in the midst of the curse. And these two things, they kind of run like parallel tracks, don't they? Right through this chapter, right through the book of Genesis. The curse is just being passed down and down and down. And the blessing of God is just passed down and down and down. And this is the way all through human history. Right the way through, the blessing is coming down. The curse is coming down. All the way through to our world, our lives today. We still live under these conditions today in a world where there is both the curse and there is the blessing of God. Of course, there's one massive difference today, which is that Jesus has come. Jesus has lived and died and been resurrected, and that has changed everything. So Jesus has become the curse for us in order to remove the curse, in order to defeat the evil one and put the curse in reverse, and he has done that. So we are, those of us that belong to Jesus, we are forgiven, we're reconciled to God, we're part of God's family now, we're in God's kingdom, and yet we still live in this world that for now, until Jesus returns, is still under the curse of sin. So the curse is still with us, even though Jesus has won the victory over. The curse is still with us. And yet in the midst of that world, there is still the blessing of God. And I think, I personally find that it's easy to see the curse. I, I don't need to catalog for you all of the ways in which you can see the curse in the world, in our communities, in our own lives, relationships, families, marriages, wherever. The curse is not hard to find. The brokenness, the sinfulness in the world is not hard to see. 
But what is hard to see sometimes is the blessing. Is that right? What, what can be hard to find sometimes, especially when you're really feeling the, the weight of the curse, is the blessing of God. But I think that's exactly what this part of the Bible reminds us. That even when the curse seems overwhelming, the blessing of God is still there. The blessing of God. God is still at work, even in the darkness, to restore and to redeem and to reconcile and to renew and to give signs of his love, signs of his presence, signs of his favor, signs of his power, signs of his peace. The blessing is there, but we've got to look for it. Because we can be so overwhelmed by the signs of the curse, the brokenness, the frustration, the stress, the anxiety, the depression, the whatever it is, we can miss it. But if we've got eyes to see it, the blessing is there. The signs of God's fingerprints are there. They're there. We experienced this uh, last year when I mean, Anna's dad passed away. And that was, a, that was a tough time. And that was a time when, when Anna really just felt that, that weight of the curse of sin. When her dad is, is, is dying, he died uh, of uh, complications arising from a bone marrow transplant and deteriorated over the course of a week. And you're just reminded there of the, the effects of the curse of sin in the world. And it was a really, really difficult time for her. And yet in the midst of that, there were some incredible signs of the blessing of God. You know, even in the darkness, even in that kind of cursed situation, um, the time that Anna and her sister and her mum had, the three of them with her dad, they're huddling in the ICU, just spending time together, the time they had to say what needed to be said and to hold his hand and talk together and pray together. And Anna sang him a song one day, sang him a hymn. Uh, those signs of the blessing of God. And I know this is not every situation, but those signs of the blessing of God, they were, they were right there. And that night that, that Grant died, Anna got in the car to come home and turn on the car, turn on Radio Rima, and, and this first song that came on immediately, as soon as she turned the radio on, was a song called Well Done, Good and Faithful One, um, based on the words of Jesus, who says that as he welcomes us home. Well done, good and faithful one. Welcome to the place where you belong. And it was, she said it was just amazing for her, thinking, as she, she's driving home, just starting to process all this, and she's hearing the very experience that Grant's having in heaven right now, hearing Well Done, Good and Faithful Son. And to think of that, you know, what, what an incredible blessing. And it didn't mean that it was an easy time or that it made everything better, but you just recognize, you can see the blessing in the midst of the curse. I know that every situation is different. I know that your situations are different to ours. But I can tell you from Scripture, and God would want to remind you today, that whatever situation you're facing, there is the blessing in the midst of that. And if you look for it, and if you ask God to reveal it to you, it's there. And He will give you signs every day of His love. Little signs. They may come through the encouraging words of someone else. They may come through a song, piece of artwork. They may come through God's word. They may come through the quiet and gentle prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life. But they are there. The fingerprints of God are there. They're in your situation. They're in the turmoil. They're in the anxiety. They're in the stress. They're whatever you're facing. It is a cursed world. But the blessing of God is still there. So let's learn to look for it. Even though we are living in this world of sin and brokenness, even though in a few generations' time no one's going to know our name, and we're just, our life is a vapor, it's a mist. But for this time, for this moment that we live, we can choose how we live. We can choose to live like Enoch. We can choose to live, we can be the Enoch in our generation. 
We can be the blessing of God to other people. We can pass blessing along rather than cursing along to the generations that come after us. We can be that bright, shining light in the generations. And we can look for the blessing of God around us in the midst of the darkness. We can still claim the blessing and receive that blessing of God, his presence, his power, and his peace in the midst of our life. It is there for you every day. We just need to open our eyes and ask God to help us see it. I pray that you would see the blessing of God. I pray that you would know the blessing of God, whatever you're going through. I pray you'd receive it. And I pray you would become a vessel of God's blessing to others around you in the midst of this dark world. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we thank you, even for the strange part of Scripture that seems weird to our ears, but we thank you that it's there for a reason. And we thank you for the way that it reminds us we do live in such a broken world. We live such broken lives. We live in broken relationships. And yet, God, we thank you for the assurance this morning, for the reminder this morning that you are with us, that you are present, that you are here. And we want to pray, God, for those signs in our lives, the signs of you just saying to us, I've got this under control. I'm with you. I am for you and not against you. And I'm holding you in my arms and I will carry you through whatever it is you're going through. I pray for those even among us this morning that just need that sign of your presence. Lord, we know we have your word. We know that's all we need. But sometimes, God, a little reminder doesn't hurt. A little reminder of your presence. Lord, would you graciously show those who need it this morning a sign that you are with them, that you love them, and that you carry their lives and their families in your arms. We thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.